When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Attending Fenway Park, the home of the Boston Red Sox, has an almost religious feel for any baseball fan. These walls watch Cy Young, Babe Ruth, Trish Speaker, Ted Williams, Carl Yastrzemski, Roger Clemens, and Pedro Martinez fill its stands with loyal fans night after night. These base paths were home to eight World Series championship teams, and it hosted three All-Star games. Since 1912, this stadium has been the heart of Boston sports. When stepping into Fenway Park, there's one landmark that's truly impossible to miss. That giant left field wall, covered in green paint. It's truly a sight to behold. The Green Monster is a baseball icon. It's one of our great wonders of the world for sports. But it wasn't always a monster, and it wasn't always green. So how did the wall become the left field landmark we know and love today? The Green Monster, on this episode of Rounders, A History of America's Game. Hey everybody, I'm Jeff Lambert. I want to thank you for tuning in to the third episode of Rounders, A History of America's Game. Man, I'm excited. Things have been getting better week by week. Uh, I'm really encouraged by the growth we've had. We're up to 100 subscribers on Facebook. We're growing on Instagram. I just launched the Twitter page, and we've seen some growth there. And the thing I'm liking the best is I'm getting some feedback, some interaction from some of the people that are following the podcast. And that's really what I want. I want people who uh, are interested in the topic to not only enjoy the show, but to to start conversations with me about what we're talking about. And I think that's really what I want to start here is a discussion about the sport that we all care about. So thank you for your support. Thank you for your patronage. It's been a real exciting couple weeks getting this going. So last week was fun. We got to talk about Jackie Mitchell, the uh, woman who struck out Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig back to back. And it was Neat seeing some of the feedback on that topic from different people on social media. There seems to be a pretty good split in terms of if people think it was a legitimate event that occurred or if it was all just something that was staged by the owner of the Chattanooga Lookouts and he was in cahoots with Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig doing this. Uh, as I stated in the previous show, I fully believe that Jackie Mitchell accomplished what occurred in that game, that she legitimately struck out those two Hall of Famers. Um, but it was a good conversation to have, and we got a chance to look on social media throughout the rest of the week, other women who were able to break barriers and become more involved in men's uh, professional baseball over the years, leading all the way up until today. And so I certainly hope that that trend continues. I think there's a lot of talented people out there that should be able to play in professional sports regardless of their gender. 
So we'll see what happens with that. And it was fun taking that trip uh, through history to learn about some of these things that I honestly had never heard about before. So then it came time to pick an episode for uh, this third podcast. And uh, I decided to go back to my roots. So I grew up a Red Sox fan. And I wanted to do something on my city's team. So in thinking about topics, I thought about every year I'd go to the park at least once. My dad would come home with tickets from his company's seats. We always had uh, the same four right in right field, right next to Pesky's pole, which is the foul pole in right field, aptly named after Johnny Pesky, famous Red Sox player, and later on a coach for the team. Uh, It's just something I've always had in my life. I remember being five years old, and I'd go to the game, and at that point, the things that you really care about as a five-year-old are eating Fenway Franks and watching that bright scoreboard out out in the outfield. And then at 10 years old, it's about seeing your favorite player make an amazing catch or hit a home run. And I think when I was 10 years old, my favorite player was Mike Greenwell, who was the right fielder for the Red Sox, so I was sitting close to where he was playing. And then you get into your teenage years, you start to really become fully engulfed in the sport that you grew up loving, and you want to go to the chance, you want the chance to go to the park, uh, any, any opportunity that you can. And when I was young, my mother taught me how to keep a baseball scorecard, and I would always do that no matter which game we went to. And baseball just was something that I grew up with, something that I developed a love for, and not just a love for the sport, but a love for the teams. Boston is, is very loyal to the teams that... Um, occupy their city and their region. And so I'm a Red Sox fan through and through. And I remember that no matter who I took to the park with me to these games, didn't matter their age, their background, whether they like sports or not, when you walk out of that tunnel and you see that green monster in left field, it's a sight to behold. It's something that sticks with anybody, no matter their interest level in baseball. And over the years, I've seen it be a baseball player's best friend, or its worst enemy, based on what occurs. So the wall gives and the wall takes. And that's happened to the Red Sox both for and against. And it makes the game a little more unpredictable. And I think that's part of the allure of the green monster. So for those of you who haven't had the privilege, nay, the pleasure of visiting Fenway Park, let me just paint a picture of what this icon looks like. So it's located in left field. It begins from the foul pole and extends all the way to center field which is approximately 231 feet. The distance from home plate to the left field wall is only 310 feet, and that makes it one of the closest walls in baseball history. It also rises up 37.2 feet, and that makes it the highest outfield wall in Major League Baseball currently. It would be the highest wall in all of professional baseball, but it's actually six inches short from the left field wall at People's Bank Park in York, Pennsylvania, which is home to the York Revolution who play in the Atlantic League. So you would think right-handed hitters would love the Green Monster. It's closer, it's easier to hit home runs off of, but then you've got it going up more than 37 feet in the air. So you have this towering, towering wall that you look at when you step to the plate. As a matter of fact, uh, former Red Sox pitcher Bill Spaceman Lee, the first time he walked into Fenway Park after he had been signed, he looked at the Green Monster and he said, did they leave it there during the games too? That's the effect that it had not only on players, but also on the fans that came to this stadium night in and night out. 
So I wanted to go into the history of the Green Monster and talk about why it became the way that it is today. And it's actually a pretty interesting journey. So we would have to go back to 1911. And that's when the Red Sox owner at the time, his name was John I. Taylor, he purchased a weirdly shaped nine-acre lot because he wanted to build a new stadium. There was a busy road that bordered one of the um, edges to the property, known as Lansdowne Street, and that was where the left field wall would go. There were a lot of pedestrians walking on that street, and there was a lot of traffic that went back and forth. There were also businesses on Lansdowne Street. So Taylor, looking to make sure that nobody was getting any free peaks during the game, he decided to build a 10-foot-high earthen wall across Lansdowne Street. So basically, just imagine building a hill that went up 10 feet. So if you're standing on the street side on Lansdowne Street, you can't see the game because there's this large earth terrace in front of you. Now, he also wanted to use that 10-foot raised hill as overflow seating in case the games got too crowded. People could go and sit on that, that earth hill. So on top of the earth hill, he built a 25-foot wood wall, and he placed advertisements across it. So if you're in Fenway Park, you would see a left field wall that went up about 35 feet. You would see a bunch of advertisements on the wood wall, and then there would be this raised 10-foot earth hill at the bottom of it. And that was the view you got, and if there weren't enough seats, sometimes people would sit back there as well. But just imagine playing left field during that time. If a fly ball was hit into left field, and you have to run up that hill to get to the ball, you had to track a ball up 10 feet on an incline. Now, this would only count if nobody was sitting in that overflow seating, but it happened more often than not that left fielders that played in Fenway had to account for that extra incline if the ball was hit that way. And there actually was a Red Sox player who gained quite a bit of fame for mastering that area. And we're going to talk about him more, than a, more in, in just a bit. I, I do want to point out before we go further into this that uh, building high walls was not exclusive to the Red Sox during the early 1900s. There were other ballparks that used that same strategy, and it was usually for the purpose of blocking free looks at the games from outside of the park. So some examples of this, we have Baker Bowl in Philadelphia. It had a right field wall that was only 280 feet from home plate, and that wall was 60 feet high. There was also Washington Park in Brooklyn. That had a right field wall that was only 215 feet from home plate, and it was 42 feet high. Then there was also League Park in Cleveland, and that had a right field wall that was... 290 feet from home plate and that wall went up about 40 feet high as well so Fenway Park wasn't necessarily unique in having a very high wall with a short distance from home plate to uh, home run territory but nevertheless this uh, left field wall at Fenway did become uh, a popular sight to see during this time and certainly gained popularity as time went on which we'll talk about throughout the podcast so let's go back to that left field area at Fenway. Remember, you've got the 25-foot-high wooden wall, and then you've got the 10-foot incline there, that earth terrace. So there was a, a guy named Duffy Lewis. He was Boston's first star left fielder. In addition to being a great player, he was also known for his skill in handling balls that were hit towards that grass terrace. He was able to track balls up that 10-foot incline. He was able to make good catches, know how the ball landed against the wall and how to play it to be able to make the correct play in certain situations. 
Because of his skill in being able to master this area of the ball field, it was nicknamed Duffy's Cliff. So Duffy Lewis played for the Red Sox from 1910 to 1917. And that cliff was the first defining landmark of that left field area that would eventually become the Green Monster. So in 1934, there was a new owner that bought Fenway and the Red Sox. His name was Tom Yockey, and he arranged to flatten that ground in left field. So Duffy's Cliff was eventually done away with. Um, And there's a reason why Duffy's Cliff was destroyed. Fenway Park was mostly made of wood. And since everybody and their mother smoked during this time, fires in the park were common. So, for example, on May 8th, 1926, several fires broke out in the stands during the game, possibly due to cigarette and cigar use. There was one fire in particular that broke out, and it happened along the third base bleachers that bordered Duffy's Cliff. That fire was so bad that it destroyed all of the seating and it left this charred section that went all the way down the left field line. The left field line. The Boston Globe ran a story the day after this fire occurred and they said, and I quote, the fire started in the third base bleachers near the famous Duffy's Cliff. It burned through the wooden fence onto Lansdowne Street and so heavily damaged the third base bleachers that they are a total loss. And just to confirm that God is a Yankees fan, during that same year, a tornado touched down in Boston, and it caused severe wind damage to the entire ballpark. The storm ripped out about 500 to 600 seats. So between this fire and the tornado, Fenway Park looked like a dump. And the owner, uh, Taylor, at the time, decided to use the insurance money that he got from both disasters, and he spent it on team expenses instead of fixing up the damaged sections to the park. So from 1926 to 1933, left fielders could just run into this vacant, burned-out left field area to catch foul balls. There was nothing there. And the park as a whole just looked really run down and really dilapidated, but especially along the left field line where Duffy's cliff was. So going back to Tom Yockey, he came in as the new owner in 1933, and he declared that he was going to fix up the ballpark, and that included the installation of a new left field wall. So during the summer before the 1934 season, the new outfield wall was being built. Now, right before the completion at the start of the season, another fire broke out. And supposedly, this was from a tipped-over heating stove that was in the ballpark. Now, what someone was doing with a heating stove in July is beyond me. But the fire ruined most of the construction that was being done. And it was dubbed by the Boston Globe at the time as, quote, one of the worst disastrous fires in recent Boston history, end quote. So Mr. Yockey, after all that work, lost a ton of money, but he took no chances the second time around. And this time he decided to build that left field wall area with a concrete base and build the wooden wall on top of that for advertisements. But he made sure to cover the wall in tin to prevent any more fires. And that seemed to work. So now you have this new hollow concrete base where Duffy's Cliff used to be. And that was the spot for a new scoreboard in Fenway Park. And this new scoreboard that was used along the wall facing the ballpark, uh, it kept balls and strikes and outs, and it also showed the box score for the ongoing game. In addition, there were scores for the other league games that were displayed. 
Now all of these display numbers and words needed to be changed by hand, and it's still done that way to this day at Fenway Park. So inside the concrete base, behind the scoreboard, you had two individuals sitting in there, and they would change the scores and change the information as the game went on. And that inside area became very popular for not only left fielders, but other players who visited Fenway Park. They wanted to go in and see this feature, and thousands of players, ever since this was built, have stepped inside and left their signature inside that concrete base. Uh, Babe Ruth's autograph is reportedly somewhere on the walls in there. So that was the new concrete base with the new scoreboard. And on top of that concrete base, again, they built a wall for advertisements, and it was covered in tin to make sure that fire didn't break out again. And there were several advertisements that were bought by local businesses that were placed along this wall. So some new additions that were added to this new left field wall included a net that stretched across the entire wall on the very top that was added in 1936 because several business owners on Lansdowne Street had petitioned Tom Yockey to please put something up there because home run balls were flying over and landing in the street and actually breaking windows and causing damage to the businesses that bordered that area. So netting was installed and it would stop the balls from going over the wall into the street. But that created a new problem and the balls that landed in the net needed to be retrieved. So there was a ladder that was added to the wall. It started 13 feet above the ground, and it ran up the side of the scoreboard to the top of the wall where personnel could go up and collect the ones that were hit up there. Now, there were seats that were added to the top of this wall. We'll talk about that later in 2003. But that ladder, even though it wasn't needed anymore, still is there to this day. And it's left there as a historic reminder. So you see the green monster starting to take shape. There's a high wall. There's a hollow concrete base where a scoreboard exists. And the ladder's there. So we have the beginnings of a monster. But it's not green yet. So why green? Well, in 1947, Tom Yockey, the owner, decided to remove the advertisements from the left field wall and paint it to match the color of the rest of the walls in the stadium, which at that time was that shade of green. Now, why was the inside of the park painted green? I researched high and low. I called up owner John Henry and left him a message. I'm sure I'll call back. But I couldn't get a definitive answer on this. I came across a couple people that were putting out a popular hypothesis a few times that green was chosen due to the very high Irish population in Boston, and that's the color connection to that group. But there was nothing of substance to back that claim up, so I digress. So we have the wall painted green to match the rest of the stadium. And in 1976, Yockey covered that wood and tin wall and replaced it with a hard plastic, which gives it the look that we know and love today. So only recently, the green monster has ads put back on its wall again. And this started back in 1999. The Red Sox were slated that year to host the All-Star Games, so they put a large advertisement on the Green Monster advertising the upcoming All-Star Game. So that was unveiled. And then as time went on, the Red Sox decided to add more uh, items to the wall. That included the Jimmy Fund, 
which is the Red Sox uh, charity organization, which is devoted to cancer care and research. And that was added in the mid-2000s. And then to this day, you have several different advertisers that have uh, spots on the Green Monster. So that's become a thing again. So we have the scoreboard, we have the ladder, we have the green color, and now we have the advertisements back. Now, in addition to that, in 2002, the new Red Sox ownership decided that they wanted to add seats to the top of the Green Monster, where the netting was. So they removed the netting and placed 274 seats up there. And I can say from experience that it is one of the most unique seats that you can come by in baseball. Now, the tickets are wildly expensive and they're hard to come by, but it's absolutely beautiful up there. It's hard to describe when you see the ballpark from that angle. So the Green Monster, because of its imposing height and uh, its unique way of changing the game based on how balls are hit there, it's developed its own terminology over the years. So apparent doubles in other parks became known as Fenway Singles. Pop flies that would be outs in other parks would graze the wall on their way down and could become doubles. And line drives would clank off the wall for wall-ball doubles, as they were called. And long drives that cleared the monster were known as Lansdowne shots. So a terminology started to develop just on how baseballs were hitting the green monster. And over the years, the green monster has been an active part of some amazing moments in baseball history. I decided to choose three of my favorite events that I researched that involved the green monster directly and how it directly impacted certain games and events that happened within Red Sox games. There are many more, but these are the ones that stand out in any baseball fan's mind, I think. So let's start off with the first one. I'm going to play the game day audio. I'll give you a little bit of background after I play it, see if you can remember the event. So that audio is from Game 6 of the 1975 World Series between the Boston Red Sox and the Cincinnati Reds. Now it was the 12th inning, and the Red Sox had a guy at the plate named Carlton Fisk, their catcher, and he faced off against Cincinnati Reds pitcher Pat Darcy. Fisk hit a ball that went down the left field line, and it was appearing to be heading foul. And there's this iconic image of Carlton Fisk jumping up and down and waving the ball fair as he made his way down first base. And it's considered by many to be one of baseball's greatest moments. Now that line drive ball hit the foul pole and stayed fair. And it gave the Red Sox a 7-6 win and forced the 7th and deciding game of that 1975 World Series. Now the Red Sox went on to lose that World Series, but that televised moment not only sticks in Red Sox fans' minds, but it also changed the way that TV was broadcast for baseball games because of the emotion that was brought forward from that hit. Now, on a complete side note, the reason that this was such an iconic play, not only in sports history, but also for TV history, as I mentioned, was because of the fact when it was filmed, The camera stayed on Carlton Fisk, waving the ball fair down the line instead of focusing on the ball going out of the park. And there was a reason for that. 
the cameraman that was uh, on duty that night said in an interview that he was distracted by a nearby rat when the ball was hit. So since he was unable to follow the ball where it was going, he decided he was just going to keep the camera on Carlton Fisk instead. Now that worked out great because of the fact that in later years that caused camera operators to focus most of their attention on the players themselves instead of the ball being hit. So there was a change in how games were filmed because of this. Now let's take a listen to the second most iconic event involving the Green Monster. Here in the seventh inning, the Yankees are trailing 2-0. That is the key man. Stretched by Torres, the set, the kick, and the pitch. Hit deep to left field. This one may be off the wall, maybe in the screen. Home run! Home run for Bucky Dent. Home run of the Yankees lead it 3-2. Just in the net in left field. And the entire bench is out on the playing field. The dugout has emptied, waiting for Bucky Dent, who has put the Yankees out in front. 3-2. To my Red Sox fans, I'm sorry. I should have given you some sort of notice before I played that clip. I know it's still raw, especially for those that lived through it. What you just heard occurred in 1978. The Red Sox and the Yankees had finished the season tied for the American League East Division crown, and so there was a tiebreaker game played between the two of them. It was the seventh inning. The Red Sox were up 2 to nothing, and Bucky Dent, who was the ninth player in the order, came up to bat. And Bucky was not known as a power hitter by any stretch. He only hit 40 home runs over his entire 12-year career. So Dent steps up to the plate. He crushes a three-run homer that goes over the green monster, shattering the Red Sox fans' belief that this game was in their hands. The Yankees went on to win that game 5-4. to four. They won the division title, and Boston was out of the playoffs. They had a huge lead for first place in July. They had squandered the whole thing. It's known as one of the largest leads blown for first place in Major League history. So a generation of Red Sox fans that went through this have referred to this moment as Bucky Bleeping Dent. So that brings us to my third moment in Green Monster history. And this one's a little more lighthearted, also a little more recent. I'm going to play to you the audio, see if you can remember what occurred. We'll see how he approaches him here in this bases loaded situation. Like Manny's uh, going back... Uh... Where's he going? He's going behind the scoreboard. <laughs> yeah, he used to go back there too, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Door was open, so then he's heading on in. Maybe there's a fan in there or something. They keep him cool. He knows it's not a pitching change, right? Because he's not back yet. I hope so. Maybe the attendant uh, down there should tell yes. him. Can he come back, please? Because at this it's moment, not a pitching change. Manny is not in left field. There's no left fielder oh my goodness. at this moment. Oh, my goodness. Come on, Manny. Here we go. Hey, here we go. <laughs> Welcome back. Come on back, Manny. I mean, 
<laughs> oh, I miss you, Manny Ramirez. So to give you some background on that audio clip, it was July 18th, 2005, and the Red Sox had Manny Ramirez in left field. Now, Manny was known for doing some outlandish things while he was out in left field. There were various moments throughout his playing career where he would go into the Green Monster during breaks in the game. He was spotted through some of the holes in the scoreboard talking on his cell phone or drinking Gatorade. But this one in particular was caught by the cameras, and it was it was a humorous moment. What had occurred was uh, the pitching coach for the Red Sox had gone out to the mound to visit with the pitcher. And at that moment, Manny decided that he was going to go into the Green Monster to supposedly use the bathroom. Uh, the thing that happened, though, was the pitching coach was only out there for a short time. So the entire game had to be held on delay while Manny finished what he was doing in the Green Monster and came back out to left field before the next pitch was released. It just goes back to that popular saying at the time when he was on the Red Sox, that's just Manny being Manny. Before we wrap up the show, we need to take a step back. I forgot to go to our seventh inning stretch and talk about how you can continue to support the podcast. So we will be right back after this message. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment and follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Rounders Podcast. That's one word, Rounders Podcast. If you subscribe, you'll get photos, quotes, and short event summaries from baseball's rich past in your feed on a regular basis. I also want to use social media as a means to hear from you about the topics that you would like to see covered in future episodes. So please take a moment, subscribe, and keep in touch. I've also started a Patreon account, so if you'd like to support the podcast financially and would like to support future episodes, please take a moment. Just $1 to $2 a month can go a long way towards helping me upgrade equipment and pay some bills, which gives me more time to focus on putting quality content together for your enjoyment. Members contributing 5 or more dollars a month will receive perks such as show notes with photos and research references, you'll get extra episodes, and you'll get regular live Q&A sessions with me. So if you're interested in supporting financially, just go to patreon.com and search for Rounders Podcast, one word. There's also a link available in the show notes. That's all for now. Let's get back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. I know that wasn't a true seventh inning stretch session, but it was important for me to get that information in there in case we have any new listeners who need to figure out how they can connect with us on social media or would like to support the podcast. So I appreciate your patience. So we've had an interesting journey this episode in learning about the Green Monster and how it's come to be the icon that's celebrated today. It's over 100 years old, and I know that it's going to continue to inspire awe of anybody that visits Fenway, and it's going to keep bringing that level of unpredictability to any baseball game at Fenway Park. And that's what makes the Green Monster such a unique icon in sports again thank you for taking the time to support this podcast and remember there are only two seasons winter and baseball